you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the book of Job, chapter 11. Job, chapter 11. Have you ever had a friend about whom you would say, if that person was not my friend, he or she would not be my friend? He or she may be your friend, but there are times when you wonder why. We might say the same about Job's friends. I would remind you that in the ancient world, in certain cultures, friendship would be solemnized in a ceremony, a covenant ritual. They would pledge, they would promise to take care of each other in all types of circumstances. We have an example of this with David and Jonathan. We are told that Jonathan made a covenant with David. He said, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So it's not just like, hey, let's be friends. It's like before God, we make this oath that we will be friends and take care of each other. I mentioned before that three times Abraham is referred to as a friend of God. He was called God's friend. Not a buddy, not a pal, but one who was in a covenant relationship with God. I think in the modern world, we think of friendship as something that happens naturally. We have similar interests, something happens, something clicks, and and we become friends. There's no sense of obligation, no commitment, oftentimes. There's no verbalizing saying, I'm going to be your friend, and this is what it means to me. When you're in need, I'm there. And I trust that when I'm in need, you'll be there for me. This is the kind of friend that Job has. They weep for him. They weep with him. They join him. They risk disease and disgrace. They practice and illustrate the ministry of presence and sacrament of silence until they open their mouths. We are told in Proverbs 27, 6, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And when we read what Job's friends have to say about him, we're tempted to say with friends like this, who needs enemies? Psalm 55 says, my companion attacks his friends, he violates his covenants. This seems to be precisely what's happening in Job's case. In chapter 6, verse 14, Job tells them, at least in the NIV, it reads, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. And as I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, I just think this is not well put in the NIV. It almost seems to be saying that Job is saying, even if I turn my back on God, you should still support me. This is not at all what he is saying. What he is saying is, in abandoning Job, as they have, they are abandoning God. They're the two great commandments. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. And in loving our neighbors whom we can see, we in fact demonstrate our love for God whom we cannot see. So when these friends abandon Job, they are, in essence, turning their backs on God. The ESV, the English Standard Version, I think reads much better. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You don't stand with a friend. You have, in fact, forsaken the fear. You have no fear of God. You've turned your back on God. As we've seen, a common thread that runs 
through the arguments that the friends put forward is that Job has committed some horrible sin. He knows what he's done. God knows what he's done, and that's why God is punishing him with all this suffering. And they all pile on. It starts with Eliphaz and then Bildad. Today we'll look at Zophar. Instead of comforting him, uh, they seem to want to rub salt in Job's wounds rather than comfort him. Eliphaz tells him in chapter 5, I myself have seen a fool taking root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. Um, Yeah, even fools live a good life for a period of time, and then God comes at them, and he takes their children. And Eliphaz seems to be saying, Job, what happened to your kids? That's your fault. Well, Bildad goes even further in chapter 8, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. In other words, it's your kids' fault that they're dead. They sinned against God. That's why God killed them. I don't have children, but I do remember growing up, I had a sister, uh, Michelle, with whom I quarreled, seemed incessantly. Um, But if anybody said anything about my sister or against my sister or tried to provoke her or tried to do something against her, I was there because that's family. And I think this is a really low blow on the part of his friends to bring his children into the discussion. And Eliphaz to say, well, Job, your kids died because of you. And then Bildad said, no, your kids died because of the wretches that they were. Well, Zophar the Naamathite is next and he can hardly wait. It's been suggested he's the youngest of the three, and that's why he speaks last. I think figuratively he's been pacing on the sidelines. He can hardly wait to get in the game. He can hardly wait to have a shot at Job. One writer put it this way, it is clear from his graceless tirade that he has been impatient to get at a man whom he once respected, but whose whining inability to recognize the danger he was in had canceled out any sympathy he may have had for him. I used to respect this guy, but boy, this, this whining and this refusal to acknowledge he's done something wrong, I've got to do something. Another commentator wrote, like a leopard springing from ambush upon its unsuspecting prey, Zophar enters the debate clawing and scratching for Job's jugular vein. As the youngest of the three friends, he has been biding his time and building his rage. He's just pacing back and forth. He's ready. He's ready to let Job have it. Look at chapter 11, the first three verses. Then Zophar the Naamathite replied, Are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? Zophar begins with what seems to be a mocking of Job. Um, Bildad opened his speech with the words, how long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. In other words, you're just full of hot air. Um, Ecclesiastes says, the more the words, the less the meaning, and how does it profit anyone? But this isn't what Zophar is saying. See, in the Old Testament, there is a moral quality attached to what one says. One's speech has a moral component to it. A fool is someone who acts or who lives as though God does not exist. 
So again, in Ecclesiastes, words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips. In Proverbs 13, he who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. This seems to be what Zophar is saying of Job. And then back to Ecclesiastes, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. Zophar is like, are we, how long are we going to listen to this? How long are we going to listen to this fool? Are we going to tolerate this? To him, to him it isn't simply hot air. It's blasphemy. He cannot stand what he hears from Job. To him, Job is a heretic and a blasphemer. So Zophar must speak. But in doing so, Zophar violates some of the cardinal rules of debate, of argument, of negotiation, of counseling, of conversation. The first rule he violates is he speaks while he is angry. He is really angry with Job. And rather than, in a sense, backing off and thinking things through and calming down, cooling off, Zophar jumps in. And in doing so, he allows his anger to drive him into a corner of overcommitment. As I said earlier, he's been biding his time, building his rage. The same author writes, by the way, Zophar minces no words and spares no feelings in his vehement attacks on Job. Whereas Eliphaz and Bildad tried to make their suffering friend feel guilty by reciting the formula that sin equals suffering, you could say also suffering equals sin, uh, Zophar tries to bludgeon Job with verbal violence that will reduce him to shame. And if, in fact, I were to summarize chapter this chapter, 11, with two words, it would be, verbal violence. In anger, he refers to Job's words as unnecessary, as empty, as false, as mocking. And his anger pushes him to an extreme position that he must now defend. And to defend that, you know, because he's angry, he's in a sense overcommitted, he now commits a second, he breaks a second cardinal rule of debate, and that is he resorts to exaggeration. By the way, if you want any examples of exaggeration, simply turn on the radio or the TV or read the news and listen to politicians in our country speak. In any communication, this is not helpful. To speak in anger, which then requires an overcommitment, which then requires that one exaggerate to make a point. When one person says to the other, you said, rather than, I think I heard you say, well, there are going to be problems. Because the reality is, oftentimes, we do not get right what we hear somebody say. And when we do get it right and we repeat it back, the inflection, the emphasis, the body language isn't there. We've given it our own interpretation. On one of the Mars Hills recently, they talked about a school back east that when they have debates, uh, they have a rule that, uh, let's say, Team A can state their position, and then Team B, before they can respond, they have to say what Team A said to their satisfaction. 
And if, in fact, they say what Team A said and they get it to, then they can object or they can make their argument against them. Boy, what would talk radio be like today if, in fact, people had to do that? And Zophar exaggerates because he thinks he's heard something because he's angry. And I would say in many ways he's not thinking quite rationally. So look at verse number four. You said to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. This is not the case. Yes, Job is convinced that his reasoning is right, his heart is righteous, but he does not use the word flawless or pure or clean. He does use the word blameless, as does the author of the book of Job in the very first verse of this book, as does God in describing Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean sinless. It refers to having integrity. And Job is a man of integrity. He never claimed to be perfect. Job has never said, and he will not say, I have not sinned, or I do not sin. But because of Zophar's position, his anger, his exaggeration, he overcommits. He now says, Job, you said you were perfect, and Job never said this. What Job is saying is, if suffering is the result of sin, I have not done anything to merit the suffering. But having misquoted Job, as Zophar does, we shouldn't be surprised that as the chapter unfolds, Zophar now speaks for God. And why shouldn't he? In taking an extreme position, which he must now defend, he speaks for everybody. It doesn't start out that way, I would argue. If you look at verse number five, Zophar wants God to speak. Oh, how I wish that God would speak. They, he would open his lips against you. But since God has not spoken, and that is the issue for Job, he wishes that God would speak, Zophar is going to do it for him. Verse 6, And disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. I think what Zophar may be referring to is what we find in Deuteronomy 29.29. 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. In other words, in the wisdom of God, there, is, there are those things which he has not revealed to us. Those are the secret things. But there are the things he has revealed to us. These are the two sides of wisdom. Zophar claims that, in fact, he knows the secret part. There are two sides to wisdom, and I, Zophar, speaking for God, I know the secret things of God. Look at the rest of verse number six. I didn't finish the verse. Look at it. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. Zophar has the secret knowledge. He knows what God knows, and he knows that God has forgotten some of Job's sin. Job, you don't know why this happened, but I do. And it could have been a lot worse. But there's certain things you've done that God's already forgotten about. Just a warning. If someone claims to know the secret things of God, someone claims to know what God is thinking, beware. Beware. There is a place for the prophetic voice. I think it's very rare. 
But when you have someone who says, the Lord told me to tell you, um, beware. Privileged information, that is what God apparently has told you, can be weaponized. It can be a vicious weapon, particularly when it is used to protect our own self-interest. The Lord told me that this is what I'm supposed to do, when in fact what you may be doing is quite wrong. Zophar claims to know that Job hasn't gotten as much as he deserves. And in doing this, he exaggerates God's justice. And yet he contradicts himself. If God is a God of justice, why hasn't he just let Job have it? Well, he sort of has, but there are certain things he's, had, he's forgotten. But what kind of a God of justice forgets the things you've done? And then he exaggerates God's wisdom. Look at verses 7 through 12. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceitful men, and when he sees evil, does he not take note? But a witless man can no more become wise than a wild, wild donkey's colt can be born a man. Verses 7 through 9, Zophar begins by praising God's wisdom. And you could, in fact, turn verses 7, 8, and 9 into a hymn. It's quite wonderful. He speaks of the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of God's wisdom. But then he turns around and says, listen, God is wise, but you know what? You are a donkey. You're a witless man. God is great. God is wise. And you know nothing. I, on the other hand, so far, God has revealed to me. And I know things that you don't know. And Job, you are just stupid. You are a witless man. So what do you do with a witless man? You exaggerate God's promises. Look at verse 13, 13 to 19. Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You will look about you and take your rest and safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor. Having called him an empty-headed donkey, Zophar now calls him back. See, I, I know God has showed me. I know things you don't. But you know what? Come back come back. He calls him to repent, a turning around, a changing of his thinking. And he presents four necessary steps. Devote your heart to him, stretch out your hands to him, put away the sin that is in your, in your hand, and allow no evil to dwell in your tent. And on some level, Zophar is right, and this is what makes him so dangerous. Um, but where he where he drops the ball is, this is just ritual. This is, in a sense, going through the motions. For Zophar, it's all black and white. Keep the rules, good things will happen. 
break the rules, bad things will happen. So stop breaking the rules and come back and keep the rules. There's not a word, a word about a relationship with God. This is cold, detached calculation. And, by the way, there are benefits to repenting. And that is the enticement. This is what we heard from Eliphaz. This is what Satan said to God. Yeah, Job worships you because of all the benefits. And now Zophar is like, come back to God for all the benefits. He will, you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble. It's like, be like water under the bridge, like a river gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday. You will be secure. You will take your rest in safety. No one will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. Come back to God and the benefits will be more than you can imagine. As I said, this is what Satan said to God. It's what Eliphaz promised. It's what Bildad promised. But if you think about it, if you read this list of promises, these are the things we want rather than the things that God has promised. And again, because of his anger, he is overcommitted. He then um, exaggerates. And he exaggerates, I think, both Job's condition, but also God's judgment or his justice, his wisdom, and his promises. It is almost as though we say faith on one side of the scale, the things promised on the other side. More faith, you get more things that are promised. When we do this, and in so far in doing this, we are limiting God, that God can only respond to our actions. There's not a word of grace here. It is a graceless tirade. Because God gives us what we do not deserve. But for Zophar, it's all a mathematical uh, calculation. If you do these things, God will give you these things. It is as much as to say God will have to do these things. He must respond as our actions demand. God must treat me in a certain way. This is what the friends promise. But this isn't true. It isn't true. Just because I trust in God doesn't mean that I get what I want. God knows far better than I do. One writer put it this way, a mature faith is a growing relationship, not a reward system. As mutual trust develops between God and us, he permits us to be tested and we remain true. Keep in mind, the quote continues, that Job is suffering because of God's confidence in him, not because of his sin. It is because of God's confidence in us as his people that he may in fact put us in difficult situations, difficult circumstances, certainly situations we would never choose to be in. But because of God's confidence in his people, he does this. He has confidence in us. In a way that I do not understand, we are to trust God and he trusts us. That's why he can say to Satan, look at Job. And Satan says, no, that's not, 
okay, take away all that he has. Second time, take away his health. God has confidence in Job. But that's not how Zophar sees it. That's not how Eliphaz and Bildad see it. Job's existence is a threat to their belief system. He messes up the calculation. In a world in which you do good things, you keep the rules, good things happen to you. Here's a man who says he's been keeping the rules and look at where he is in the town dump covered with sores. Um, Yeah, that messes up the whole mathematical equation. And so there is no compassion here. Look at the last verse, chapter 11, verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and escape will elude them their hope will become a dying gasp. In other words, Job, you're going to die like the wicked do. If you do not come back to God, your only hope will be to die. Now, I want to be clear about something before we leave this chapter. Zophar does get some things right, such as repentance. The life of faith is to begin and continue with repentance. But he gets some things wrong, and that is... He says Job needs to repent, and that is not the case. He also gets it wrong that we do not have all the answers, though Zophar imagines that he does. Zophar is just outraged, because here is a seemingly blameless man who has lost everything, who claims not to know why. For Zophar, this is unacceptable. I would say one last thing about Zophar in his favor. He doesn't mention Job's kids. He has the grace not to do that, like Eliphaz and Bildad. Well, now it's Job's turn to respond. And we will begin looking at this today. We'll continue the Lord willing next week. So I've mentioned before, Job's responses generally have two parts. First of all, he deals with his friends, and then he deals with God, sometimes in direct address to God in prayer. In this third response, Job not only answers Zophar, but the other two friends as well. He defends the the fact that he has wisdom. He's not a witless, empty-headed donkey, okay? But then he petitions God to try his case before the divine tribunal. Lord willing, we'll see this next week. Job's responses make up the steps of his pilgrimage. Begins with anger against God in response to Eliphaz, in response to Bildad, despair. Now continues with terror at the absence of God, as well as his presence. I would argue that Job's response to Zophar is much more than a response, because it triggers another round of arguments. This is the first of three rounds. I don't think they planned it that way, but... Now that Job speaks, the friends were like, well, now we've got to answer that. We've got to answer what you've said. This is the longest response thus far. And it is different somewhat in his response. And I think we have Zophar to thank for this. Um, It certainly wasn't his intent. But Zophar's insolent, childish, know-it-all confidence really gets Job going. One could almost imagine him just so devastated by the physical ailments, and suddenly he's got his second win, and he's ready to take on his friends. 
As one writer put it, one cannot call another an empty-headed donkey without expecting a response. And instead of shaming him, Zophar has awakened Job. We can almost hear him getting stronger as he speaks. We almost forget that, in fact, he is in a very debilitating situation. We forget about his pain and his disabilities, as well as his emotional distress. Jolted out of his emotional turmoil by Zophar's icy spite, Job displays in his final speech in the first cycle a measure of calm control and lucidity of thought that is as welcome as it is unexpected. So writes one commentator. This is a new Job speaking. In the first part, actually when we look at this, there, this breaks up into two parts. The first complaint and then the second complaint. The first complaint is found in the first 11 verses of chapter 12. We'll follow along if you would as I read. The first 12 verses. Um, then Job replied, Doubtless you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called upon God and he answered, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of marauders are undisturbed and those who provoke God are secure, those who carry their God in their hands. But ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? Uh, Zophar came out blazing. Uh, Job returns the favor. He drips with sarcasm, what one author calls scathing sarcasm. But again, he's not simply speaking to Zophar because the you here is plural. Doubtless, you are the people. You're the man, okay? And when you die, boy, the, the world is going to be dark because your wisdom will go with you. They are presenting themselves as wiser than most. And certainly Zophar, who has spoken for God, but apparently he knows the secret wisdom of God, well, yeah, they see themselves as wiser than most, and certainly wiser than this poor wretch of a man named Job. Again, it's not simply that they imagine themselves as having all wisdom. They simply see themselves as having wisdom and Job having none. He is the empty-headed donkey after all. But Job says, I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? Job still has, he's in his right mind. And he has he has wisdom. He's not stupid. These men are acting as though only they know things that he does not know. And by the way, in, in saying this, he's responding to chapter 11, verse 12, where Zophar said that, or he implies that Job lacks wisdom. And Job says, I am not inferior to you. In fact, 
he says, listen, what you guys think is, you know that you're just so wise, everybody knows that. In fact, the animals know that. Um, it's, it's quite remarkable. Job resents his friends for at least two reasons here. First of all, he is mocked as one who asks God why he suffers when he is just and blameless. He says, I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called upon God and he answered, a mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. By the way, you'll notice he says, I called upon God and he answered. Job is looking back to the old days. There were times in the past when he called upon God and God answered him. That's the problem right now. Job is called upon God and no one's picking up. It's just dead silence. The man who had the highest of honors has now become a laughingstock, a joke, and even his friends mock him. I don't know if this is appropriate to where we are right now in this, but there does seem to be something about human nature that we almost seem to delight in the fall of those considered special or great. And I think Job perceives this, almost this glee in his friends. So you know the seven days when they didn't speak? Um, I really like the phrase, the sacrament of silence, and yet there's a part of me that's wondering, if, first of all, if they weren't waiting for him to die, but secondly, they were just loading up with ammo and they were going to let him have it. We know why these things have happened to you. They seem to delight in this. The German word is schadenfreude. You delight in the misfortune of others. And Job does not like this. He also resents them because of their attitude toward his misfortune. Men at ease have contempt for misfortune as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. See, those who are not suffering really cannot share in the suffering of those who are. We could say, I would trade places with you if I could. That's nice, but it doesn't mean anything because in fact you can't trade places. Um, we would like to empathize, and I think we should empathize, but we cannot feel the pain that they are feeling. It's been said that those who are disabled oftentimes find that other people who are not disabled either avoid them or talk down to them, or they imagine that the whole person is affected by that disability. So that someone who is blind will find that people speak loudly to them. It's like, I'm blind, I'm not deaf. But somehow that one disability, we somehow imagine that the whole person is disabled and without even realizing, treat them with some contempt. That's why Zophar has the nerve to refer to Job as an empty-headed donkey. Job could say with the psalmist in one of the, psalms of, the songs of Ascent, 123.4, Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt we have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Yep. And the arrogant and the proud in this picture? Job's friends. They weren't his friends. They wouldn't be his friends. 
And speaking of those who are at ease, Job mentions marauders who provoke God, who carry their God in their hands. They're lawless individuals, and yet nothing seems to happen to them. You know, when they say, when they say crime doesn't pay, um, check again. For some people, it pays rather well. But interestingly enough, rather than their view of man, it is their view of God that really Job is most concerned to answer. What these men claim as wisdom, we're really wise. Job says, listen, all of creation knows these things. All of creation knows instinctively who is in charge of its destiny, who gave it life and breath. I want to read these verses again. I love it. verses 7 through 10. But ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Zophar, who knows so much, you know, Princess Bride, ooh, look who knows so much, who claims to be wise, actually knows less than what animals do know instinctively. By the way, I think these verses should cause us to look at creation in a very different light. We tend to see creation as inanimate, and then you have the animate part, but yeah, the, you know, they just run by instinct. And, and Job says, listen, they know. They know where their life comes from. I think Job would be content to be an empty-headed donkey because even an empty-headed donkey knows more about God than does Zophar. While animals react on instinct, human beings have a mind. We are to think. We should think through the various issues. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? Yeah. We're not like the animals, and yet some ways they have wisdom greater than us, but we are to think. We are to meditate. We are to think these things through. I've mentioned this a number of times, but years ago, this is early 80s, um, in the LA Weekly, a prominent religious leader was interviewed. Someone that I would say we would agree with on almost all doctrinal issues. But the one thing I remember from the interview was the observation from the interviewer at the end that the religious leader answered more out of reflex than reflection. And I remember this not as a condemnation of that religious leader, but as a question as to how I answer. Do I think before I speak? Job's friends are so tied to their theological systems that they do not hear him. If you look at chapter 13, verse 6, he just wants them to listen to him. They just don't listen because they are, in fact, answering out of reflex rather than reflection. We'll close today with the interlude found in verses 13 to 25. Amazing verses. To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. 
The man he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belongs strength and victory. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows men long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings deep shadows into the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reason. He sends them wandering through a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. The language here may remind one of the language of the Psalms. As it appears to praise the reality that God is in control over all things. And yet, as much as I love these verses, I don't think that Job's intention is to, pre, is to create in us, is to provoke, um, produce a sense of admiration and awe. Rather, it is to spell out God's power and his wisdom worked out in reality. That humans are powerless to resist God, to oppose him. That the power of nature has to obey God. That God holds the fate of all, the deceiver and the deceived. The whole spectrum, they're in his hands. And for his own hidden purposes, he controls the course of history. Counselors, judges, kings, priests, men long established, trusted advisors, elders, nobles, the mighty. They are almost seen, I say almost, I don't want to speak for Job, but they're almost seen as puppets dancing to God's tune. Job here points to the inscrutable providence of God. But he does not do so with a sense of worship or awe, but I think a cool detachment. Somehow Job is now beginning to be affected by his friends' presentations, and now in answering them, he has become like them to a certain degree. He has forgotten the nature of relationship because all he hears is silence. The Lord willing will continue this next Sunday as Job continues to speak to his friends. Job's friends, I think, have much to teach us. Um, I think the least, not the least of which is, we need to be careful how we speak. We should listen. Do not answer in anger. Be angry and sin not, Paul tells us. And in doing so, we don't paint ourselves into a corner by overcommitment. We don't then exaggerate, but we listen. We are, after all, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Let's pray together.
our Father, as upset as we might be with Zophar, I think we don't get too upset because in many ways it's like looking into a mirror. We can recall the times when we have spoken in anger. And in doing so, we've resorted to exaggeration. We've overcommitted ourselves. We've not listened. And then, if we have gone too far, we may even presume to speak for you. Having twisted the words of someone with whom we're talking, someone with whom we disagree, we then twist your words. Forgive us this, I ask. And yet I can't help but wonder if the one that we speak to in anger, the one to whom we exaggerate things, is really ourself. That when we get angry with what we have done, it's like, I can't believe I did that. Rather than turning to you for grace, we go on a graceless tirade against ourselves. We don't have peace. We don't have joy. Because there is no grace. We're too busy beating ourselves up. We do to ourselves what Zophar is doing to Job. I don't think we ever claim to be without sin. I don't think we ever claim to be perfect. Why would we then be surprised and so angered when we sin? By your grace, we should not sin, but we are fallen. And with you, there is grace to be found. We see ourselves at the top of the heap. We are, after all, made in your image. And yet we forget that there's a wisdom that lies in creation that oftentimes has slipped past us. This is your world. It knows who gave it existence. The animals know who gave them breath. May we be humbled and learn from them. I thank you for bringing us together to worship you today, wherever we may be. We pray for Mike and Jesse that you would lead them and guide them. For each one of us in the coming week to have a sense of your presence and a sense of your grace, moment by moment. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.